now introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. And I am your host, Donnie Waldron. If you're listening on the podcast, welcome back. If you are watching me on YouTube, my first YouTube video, my first time I actually designated a video to YouTube. I'm going to turn the other episodes into YouTube episodes eventually. This is the first one I'm doing, video for YouTube in addition to the podcast. So welcome. If you haven't listened to me before, if you haven't seen me or only use YouTube, check me out on my podcast, the first I got 17 episodes before this one. This is episode 18. This is going to be Dr. No. And just like James Bond, Quantum of History is going to start its foray into something else on Dr. No. So I'm very excited to see what happens with this. Um, we got a couple of great guests today, great stories, great uh, topic. We're going to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs invasion, how it relates to today even with the uh, sentiments and the, and the cl- political climate. We're going to talk to Daniel Gomez, who his grandparents, his grandfather actually was in the Bay of Pigs invasion. So it's really interesting, really interesting perspective, really cool stories about how his mom got here, how his dad got here. We have Kyle from Easy Smiles and Expensive Watches. If you are in the Bond community, you know exactly who he is. He's everywhere. Um, so it's, it's going to be an exciting time. So without further ado, let's do ahead. Let's dive right in. My favorite. And I'm even not a favorite. I don't know. I'm always saying these things are my favorite. I never know. I just love them all. Like I said, there's six tenths for me and they can all interchange, but definitely my most watched. Without a doubt, my most watched Bond film, without a doubt. Dr. No, we're going to start. Bring it in. Cuban Missile Crisis. Let's come in hot. Around the time that Dr. No comes out, 1962, Cold War is at its precipice, and Castro, Cuba, the Soviet Union, um, they're all standing defiantly to the United States' interests and demands. So the Caribbean was being careened by the Soviet Union and the United States. They were both trying to get control of this area. Now, the island was within missile range of U.S. soil, and the threat of nuclear warfare was really fresh in people's minds because it was only 20 years earlier that the world was mired in World War II. You know, the wounds, the scars, the battles, the fear, the barely scabbed over. You know, the Cold War was in crisis in Cuba. We're really continually picking at the scabs of the wounds of World War II at the time. And really the atom bomb that, that leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, left the world with a new reality. You know, like things were different. You can't drop a bomb that levels two entire cities. And not have it really play on the the fears and imaginations of what these countries were not capable of in the future. So that's really what the Cuban Missile Crisis was. That people remember that it wasn't. That, it was barely you know twenty years before that they dropped the bomb. So it was it was definitely fresh in everybody's wounds, and the Cold War was becoming um, on everybody's mind. It was taught in schools. Sit on your desk if something happens, a nuclear bomb just. Is it over? If you're listening to the podcast, you don't get it, but I definitely did a great job of duck diving cover. The Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis really showed how spy games were being played at the time in um, how the CIA, who was really in its infancy at the time, was barely like I said, barely formed, um, still in its infancy, still trying to figure out how it wanted to do things. This would be the blueprint that they would get better at. But they would keep using this blueprint throughout the rest of the time. And they still use it today. Um, but, but they were just rookies at it at this time. And they didn't really know how to do it. And it was a complete and utter disaster. So what the, you know, the CIA did was they took a group of Cuban, uh, Cuban exiled refugee soldiers that were trained by the United States. And these Cuban soldiers were trained and sent to combat um, Fidel Castro, who had just overtaken President Batista. So President Batista was... Fulgencio, 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 Fulgencio Batista. President Batista at the time was regarded as a cruel and disliked, um, but Batista cooperated with the United States and the United States' interests. Part of the reason why Castro came to power was because his platform was anti-United States because the United States companies had gone in there 
and were using the sugarcane and, and all sorts of other resources that Cuba has, and they were taking them out of the country and pulling them out. Castro's idea was that these United States interests were coming into Cuba and like pillaging their resources without Cuba reaping reaping the benefits of that. And Castro's plan, what he you know proselytized to the people, was that this is our land, this is our resources. We should be the ones getting rich on it, not the U.S., not the not them. They're they're coming in. They're the enemy. And you see this you see this time and time again, especially in the Cold War. Um, we, we did the Diamonds Are Forever episode. Um, we, you, you see this time and time and time and time again, is that even though it, the person that they're picking may not be the best, may not be, may not be a good leader, may not be good for the people, but if they stay vested with the interests of the United States, a lot of times the United States will stick with them and they create bad, 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 bad world um, views because they're backing a dictator who the people hate. But if the new person comes in, especially Castro, who was, by all means, there was even the talks about how charming, and, and especially when he first became like the revolutionary, him and Che Guevara. But you see people with Che Guevara shirts all the time, which bugs me because you don't even know who Che Guevara is. And I'm not going to really talk about Che Guevara, but you're, how many times do you see the people with the Che Guevara shirts? No, no. Research who Che Guevara is before you wear a shirt of Che Guevara. But it's nothing that bothers me, but I won't get into that right now. But you know exactly the type of person wearing the stupid Che Guevara shirts. You're like, you don't even know who he is. Why are you wearing that? Take off your Che Guevara shirts. You don't even know who he is. Um, but these two guys became very popular. Very, um, they, had, they grew huge support in Cuba for their overthrowing of Batista. They were the new ones. They were going to be, and you're seeing it today. You're seeing it today in the United States, this um, the socialism thing. It's coming in, and it's such a seductive philosophy, socialism, because in the in the in the in its heart, and what it actually is trying to say is not bad. It's you're trying to say that oh, we should all be equal, we should all share, we should all should be amazing. It's just that you're going on the views that humanity is this is great, and that everyone will, it will sit there and sing kumbaya, but in reality, you're you're not. It's that it's just not humanity. I made this analogy before and I'll make it again. If you have five people, do a group project for college. Five people. How many are actually worth anything? All the time. There can be one guy or girl who takes complete control of it and does most of the work. Another person who does most of the other helping work. Two guys who are like, what a bare minimum. And then two guys that are just, or another guy that's just complete crap. Right, he doesn't do anything. Who just puts his name on it and gets the same grade as you do, and that's just with one group project with five people. You spread that out over three hundred million people and try to get any kind of efficacy out of it. It's just impossible, and that's that's always been the fault of socialism. And and it's and they have, it's never worked. It's never been implemented right. Well, it's it's it has been implemented many times, and it's all failed every time. It's been a miserable failure each time, because we want to be lazy. I want to. I want to sit down. I want to sit here and do my podcast and get paid. I don't want to have to. I, I had a shooting last night. I did, I'm on two hours of sleep and then I got to go back in for overtime because I can't live on a base salary. That's the reality. But I would love to just sit here and get paid and uh, do this podcast all day and watch Bond films. You know, but that's just not. Yeah, you got to stay motivated. And it's the, the socialism is the great unmotivator of people and so un-American. Yeah, that's my proselytization. Move back on to the Bay of Pigs. But you, it, it's the only reason I bring that up is because it's so relevant because that's how Fidel Castro came into power. Fidel Castro came into power not because um, he was preaching hard work or anything like that. He was preaching, we're all going to share this and we're going to get all the foreign influence out and this is going to be ours. Um, so, you, you, again, you've seen the socialist thing come up now and, and that's why it's relevant. That's why I bring it up now. But... The CIA has this elaborate plan. So they take B-26 bombers that are United States bombers. They fly them to uh, Venezuela, paint them over there. They paint them to look like exactly like Cuban um, Air Force. And then their plan is to fly the B-26 bombers over Cuba, in, in, over uh, Castro's Air Force, bomb all his Air Force, wipe them out, 
Once that's wiped out, then they go in on boat, and then the invasion comes on, on land. And that was the idea. Well, the problem was that the CIA, the CIA sold it to Kennedy that we are going to be able to do this with no problem. We're going to be able to do this as clandestine. No one will know that we're, no one will know our involvement because we're going to use only Cubans. Well, the problem with that is if you're going to use locals, and you're going to, use, and it's the way with anything. If you try to do any kind of operation where the bigger, you, the more people you involve, the more leaks you have, and that's exactly what happened because Kel Castro knew about the plan well ahead of time. He actually even moved his, he moved all his plans. He only, had, he, not like he had a bunch, but the ones that he did have, he moved from the Air Force Base and hit them. So when the American bombs with, with a face paint on came flying over, they, uh, they couldn't see it. They had forgotten, the intelligence had forgotten that there was a radio station or had, hadn't seen it. There was a radio station right on the invasion. So it's right in front of the radio station. The radio station is broadcasting throughout Cuba exactly every move that the invasion happens. And then where they land is full of coral. So all their ships sink. So now they have to they have no ships, all their supplies are sinking to the bottom. Then they have to swim in. It it looks like it, the sound is like something out of Monty Python. So by the time they get to the land, this lands this is only they're expecting American backup. John F. Kennedy was there's no way Kennedy was spending sending the US military into this. This was hey, if if it works, it's a Hail Mary. If it works, cool. If not, we're gonna take our losses. It's all told four hundred by the time it was done, four hundred of these re exiled refugees lost their lives. 1,100 were captured by Castro, and it was over same day. And that was it. After that, after that failed mission at that point, the United States just was like, done, I'm out. America washed its hands of Cuba and let it fall. Let it fall to communism at that point. There was nothing they were gonna do. They weren't going to do a full-scale war in Cuba. Because it Soviet Union was heavily in bed with Castro. He armed Castro. They funded Castro. Castro got the power. One, through his platform, his charisma, and his funding from the Soviet Union. So you couldn't attack him unless you wanted to bring him to World War III, which, again, no one wanted. A year later, Dr. No is released. James Bond lights up the screen, captures the imagination of everybody. And then a week after that... The Cuban Missile Crisis happens. The United States routinely spent, sent spy planes over Cuba and would take photograph pictures. On one of these missions, they saw a missile silo being built. Now, missiles weren't there yet, but clearly um, missiles were coming. The Soviet Union was building it. So it comes back with the information and brings it to Kennedy. And Kennedy has an emergency meeting because this is a big deal. I mean, this is, this is nuclear missiles, you know, from, from our last episode. You know, space race was already going on. So we knew that you know, the Soviet Union had the capabilities to send a man to space. They easily have the capability to send a missile across from Cuba to Florida or even for, further. No problem. And everybody, and his biggest political advisors sit on it for about a week, decide what they're going to do. While they're sitting on it, the plan is made. They send out a naval blockade to Cuba and basically quarantine. I know, I hate using that word, but... It, I, I read it, and they used that word. It's what they did. So quarantine uh, Cuba, make sure that the Soviet Union couldn't bring ships in or bring supplies to Cuba. Nothing could come out. Cuba, Kennedy gets on the TV. There's a huge broadcast. Unequivocally condemns the actions of the Soviet Union, demands that they stop, demands all this, all this other thing. That it needs to be torn down right away. And for 13 days... The world holds its breath. It's going to see James Bond. It's going to see this 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 mad doctor in the Caribbean with missiles that like, interferes with missiles, and they're living it. And what a, what a what a what a time that must have been. I know it's scary to thought about, but my God, what what majesty it must have been to watch James Bond in 1962 um, do all these fantastical things in the midst of living through the same thing. So the Kremlin and Kennedy finally do an accord. 13 days is over, the missile silos agreed to take down. This, the details of how, what the actual accord was wasn't released until 20, 20 something years later. The agreement was that the Soviet Union will take down the missile bases in Cuba 
if the United States takes down their bases in Turkey. So that's the arrangement that was that was made. That was the compromise. This was your first time listening to my monologue on YouTube. Again, thank you again for giving me a listen. And what I really what, what I really try to do with this podcast, with this YouTube, whatever this is going to be, um, is understand how important it is to understand history and entertainment, and how James Bond coincides so much with it, and how much we can learn, and how much history just keeps repeating itself over and over over again so that's what quantum history is all about is that these things are entertainment but they come from a real place and this real place keeps happening and you can see even from the start of the James Bond films to today that we can keep learning lessons from these movies so I'm going to bring in my good buddy Kyle from Easy Smiles and Expensive Watches to really help me sort this all out so without further ado welcome in my good buddy Kyle. Welcome again, Quantum History. We got my good friend Kyle on from Easy Smiles and Expensive Watches. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on today, man. How thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing well. Doing well. You, you ready to class up this uh, this party a little bit? Well, I think I, I kind of dressed down for you because I got the Quantum of History official uh, merch on today. <laughs> set, set up a little more. Show that off. Oh, look at look at those packs. Oh yeah. Those are three plate packs right there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, Coral, Coral has nothing on me. <laughs> you could definitely fill up that red polo. You would yeah. definitely look better than that. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. As you know, we're going to be doing Doctor No today, and Doctor No is, uh, you know, I keep going back between if it's my favorite Connery or not, and it's my most watched. So, how how does it rank for you? How do you feel about it? Pretty high. I mean, I just watched it um, the other day in celebration of global James Bond day. And it, it really holds up. I think, I mean, it, you could tell that the budgets got a little bigger over time. The special effects got a lot better, but it's such a classic Connery's in his prime. Um, I, I rank it up pretty high. I don't know if it's my favorite Connery either, but it's probably number two or three. Yeah. I, I think even for me, even the mystique of him showing up at the airport and not knowing exactly what to do. It's not like he's checking a phone. It's not like he has pictures of everything. It's not like he can do everything. He just literally shows up and he has to rely on his intuition. He has to rely on his instincts, his gut, and everything he knows to try to get even to the hotel room, which is not an easy task. You think now, you know, Uber, I, my phone, here it is, call, Skype. It's so different than I think that, that mystique is what I love about the early Connery movies. And, and the way he goes about his mission in this one, and you probably appreciate it, I mean, he's, he's behaving like a good detective. Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's kind of what he is in uh, in Doctor keeps following the mystery and unraveling another level and another level until he finally gets to uh, who's behind it, and I yeah. and he's good he's good at it he's he's just efficient like a skilled hunter in this one. Exactly, I know even today like when I, when I do my job as a detective, even juries and stuff like that expect there to be like this amazing DNA that you get hair samples and all this stuff. The reality is. Is that still even today in 2020, the way you get it is good detective work, talking to people, good, good bringing things out to people, and that's what you see in this movie. Is it's not about the gadgets, it's not about the cars as much. It's really about him just going there and unraveling the mystery and solving what he has to solve. And then the thing he uncovers a bigger plot is what happens. So I just the mystique of it. That's what I love. The storyline is just for me, grade A. Yeah, it's James Bond in his prime, and it's interesting to see that in the first movie because we're so used to origin stories now, especially like when you look at the superhero stuff, everything starts with an origin story. This one didn't. I mean, it's this is James Bond. He's already the best secret agent out there um, at the top of his game, which is great yep. to see. I like it when Bond is you know efficient and precise and capable. What about the rest of the things? What do you think about you know Ursula Andress and and um... You know, Sylvia Trench and all that. I love, uh, I love Sylvia Trench. I think she's she's elegant, and I, that that red dress that she wears, I think you could wear today, and it would still look uh, timeless and elegant. I think it's perfect, perfect woman um, for James Bond's first 
romantic interest. And then how can you get more iconic than Ursula Andress in the white bikini? Yeah, exactly. I, I think the same thing. Even when you see her in the, the, his T-shirt, when he comes with the golf, playing golf in his room, like, walks in the room, I'd be very excited about that little presentation. Yeah, I agree. Timeless. Yeah, Sylvia, yeah, Sylvia Trench for the win. Now, do you think uh, she's? Do you think she's married? Because she's got a ring on, and in the in the Fleming novels, they say like James Bond has lots of affairs with married women in his spare time. I've I've oh. wondered if like if Sylvia Trench is a bored housewife, and she's out, you know, looking for some excitement from a man like Bond. <laughs> well, first of all, James Bond's a perfect side piece. But yeah, I, could, I, could, I could absolutely see that because you could see even how aggressive she is. It's not this isn't a coy, single, young, naive girl. This is a girl who sneaks into your room, wears your coat and nothing, wears your shirt and nothing else. Like that's oh yeah, that's she's, that's cougar, that's cougar she, action. She's a lady, but she's a lady who knows what she wants and she knows how to get it. <laughs> she's she's a Tom Jones lady, right? She's yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> how about the villain? Doctor, no, especially now as we, we've got with no time to die and everything going on with that. Another, another classic, another home run uh, right off the bat. Uh, I, I love when Spectre is behind uh, the plots of Bond movies, and Doctor No is one of those villains. I think because you don't see him for so long, you only hear him. Um, it builds up the mystery a lot, and it makes him seem even more nefarious. Everybody's afraid of him. Um, you know, even his underlings are terrified of this guy and what he's going to do. I think he's a terrific villain. Even the set piece when they when he first gives him the tarantula, and yes. the ominous. He's in this small room, and it's just this, it's this big room, and there's nothing to it. It's barren. It's just got this really ominous, like you said, nefarious, ominous feel to it. It really it was like this guy, whoever this voice is, is not to be messed with. It totally works because it makes Professor Dent look like this little guy who's in over his head because he's in this vast room and we're looking down on him and you know we're kind of in the the uh, the point of view of Doctor No down on this little guy uh, yep. from a position of power. Yep, absolutely. And how do you think about the ending? Wait, what what part of the ending? Just when it, the whole missile and everything like that. How how it all comes up? Um, it's good. It's not as action-packed as we'll see in some of the later movies, but it doesn't need to be. Uh, I mean, the, the hand-to-hand combat between Bond and Dr. No is great. And then, I, like I said, I love it when, uh, when Bond rides off into the sunset with the lady, and he does it you know, right off the bat in the first movie with, uh, with Ursula Andress. Felix yep. just shaking his head like, oh, that's my James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think that the... the the ending of the movie is the weakest part of the movie. Yeah, I'll agree. I, if I'm going to be a critic of the movie, is it going to be a sign of the times, sign of the budget, or is it a sign of writing, acting, anything like that? So when it's clearly a sign of the times and the budget and the technology, I give it a complete pass because you know what you're trying to do. They just don't have the means to do it. So while it's not, it doesn't hold up as well as, as the rest of the movie does, I, you can't fault it for that. I'll agree with that. And it, it's amazing how they hit a home run right out of the right out of the gate and set yep. the formula for the rest of the series. I think that's why the series has been so successful because they started off really strong. It's kind of amazing that this movie came out a week before the Cuban Missile Crisis and then a week later after uh, English viewers were able to see this movie missiles nuclear missiles show up in the Caribbean, which I mean that's that's the plot of Dr. No. Um mm-hmm. it, I mean it doesn't it's not exactly the same. They're not controlled by the Soviet Union. Um, there are American missiles that, that Dr. No keeps toppling, um, which is kind of interesting, and that's a problem that you know, U.S. missile scientists had for a long time. They couldn't keep it up for a few years. Uh, <laughs> We've all... Hey, yeah. hey, hey, that happens to lots of guys. <laughs> sometimes the Jack Daniels wins. I don't know what to tell you, buddy. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, U.S. Uh, U.S. rocket scientists had a hard time keeping it up, but um, <laughs> but I, it, it's kind of it, I I'm always amazed that this movie pretty much predicted the future that you know rockets in the Caribbean were going to become this massive geopolitical uh, issue. But I mean, to the brink of World War III. I mean, it, it is very much a specter plot come to life: the Cuban Missile Crisis. One last thing, Kyle, before we, we get going here. So, you know, we talked about scientists who have 
trouble keeping um, their missile in the air. If you could, <laughs> if you had one one of the Bond girls to keep your in the air, who's who, who's, <laughs> who's keeping your missile in the air? Are we are we talking marriage or are we talking uh, you know just just one night no up, questions buddy. asked? <laughs> just keep I'm gonna, the missile up. I'm gonna go with uh, uh, one from left field. I'm gonna go with Fiona Volpe. You know what? That's not left field. When you see her lying down on the back with the with the dress, I'm like, she is. She needs to get her due because those are yeah, uh, two magnificent. Uh, what, what what would Fleming have called them? Protuberances. <laughs> Protuberances. Yes, yes. Uh, the missile would be right into Mars. Right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would marry her, but uh, you know, just. The one that gets the blood boiling, Fiona, <laughs> the, Fiona Volpe. The one that gets the man to Mars. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a lot of fun. As always, looking forward to doing this again. Future episodes, if you're not following him, Kyle from Easy Smiles and Expensive Watches. You see him everywhere. See, you got the best gig in the Bond community because everyone wants you on their podcast, and you just get to be the guest and do the fun part, and you don't have to do the editing part. Pretty much. I'm like, who is that guy? Um, Johnny Carson used to have a guy come on like any time he couldn't get a, another guest. I think it was Bob Hope or or Dangerfield or somebody like that. I that's me. <laughs> you're the you're the Dangerfield. I love you're the Dangerfield. That's great. I'm I'm an e- I'm an easy lay when it comes to Bond. I'll, I'll do anybody's podcast, anybody's live stream. <laughs> I can't get no respect here. <laughs> All right, Kyle. Thank you guys so much for coming on today. Again, easy smiles, expensive watches. Kyle, my man, take care. We'll be doing this again soon. Thanks, Daddy. Thank you, Kyle, for coming on again. He's so good. He's such a natural, isn't he? Like, he's just so good at this stuff. He's such a good speaker, especially on the movies and the books. I don't think there's a better person to talk about James Bond books than Kyle. He just, he knows those books front to back. And uh, he's so good at talking on it. He's such a good, such a fun dude, such a funny dude. I've met him a couple times in person, and we've talked a bunch. So, always a treat having you on, buddy. And uh, he just, like I said, he 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 nailed it when he t- said that James Bond lives five minutes in the future, and it's it's so true. And with Doctor No, it's so true. And his pick of Fiona Fiona Polfe, I can't argue with the guy. I think it's 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 his, it's my sleeper pick too. If it's not going to be Anna, I think Viona Polfe might be mine too. I go back and forth. Same with the movies. They're all tense to me. But Fiona's got a special place. So what we're going to talk about next, and I'm going to bring in my good buddy, Daniel Gomez. Now, Daniel is a Cuban-American living in Miami. He is affected by this. His family heritage is affected by this. He knows that he's intimately aware of what Cuba meant to the people, what this revolution meant, and what the consequences that happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, how that revolution from Cadastro to the fail of the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, how that all affected today, and what it is, and you're even seeing it today in this election. You, you can hear it all the time. I'm going to talk more with Daniel, but you hear it all the time in the election sections, like Cuban Americans in South Florida are having a huge voice and are going to come out big for this election just because they live through socialism. They know what it is. They know the snake oil that these carpetbaggers are selling. And we'll see. We'll see. So without further ado, my good buddy, one of the first guys who ever helped me out on this journey, Mr. Daniel Gomez. Louisiana shit. Murder on the beat. Thanks, Donnie. I got to admit, um, first and foremost, that uh, for me being on your podcast today, it felt like an NFL player getting the call from the coach saying, hey, you just got drafted. <laughs> it was long. It was long enough. Well, well, <laughs> this isn't exactly the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's how I felt. So yeah. just know that when anybody else gets called in from Donnie to be on the podcast, just know you're getting the call from the coach in the NFL. Um, <laughs> I, 
I appreciate it, man. Well, you've been, you, since the start, since my first episode, when I first started getting into this, you've been a, a huge support, even before I actually started and I started with Zoom calls and all that. So yeah. I always thank you for the support, man. You've always given good advice. So happy to have you on, man. And uh, perfect time, perfect timing. You're the, one of the two YouTube launch. Oh, that's awesome, Donnie. Well, I'm glad I could be one of the first interviews uh, for your YouTube channel. So uh, let's do this and break a leg. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Dr. No. Now, Dr. No has a special place in my heart as far as how I feel about the movie. It's, it's one of probably my most watched Bond film. And how does it feel to you? How does Dr. No strike you? Well, Dr. No for me um, has always been, prior to the release of Casino Royale, has always been Bond's uh, origin story for me because you kind of see how M introduces him to his uh, new firearm in the Walter PPK and it kind of just launches uh, the character into this uh, spy genre uh, of movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love Dr. No. I'm a huge fan and what we're talking about today with Dr. No is the historical and Daniel, you have such a, a really good perspective to be able to speak on this topic. So we're talking about the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis and everything that happened that paralleled Dr. No's storyline. You happen to be a uh, Cuban-American in southern Florida, which your grandparents, I know you have a great story to come through. Um, what, what did it mean, the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and everything that's gone on with the best Cuban How has it affected you and what has, it, what has put your trajectory of your life and how has it affected and what are the implications on that? So, Donnie, the best way to answer that is really through the story of my um, uh, biological grandfather. So, on my dad's side of the family. So, when the Bay of Pigs happened, it was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, as we all know historically. And just to give kind of a background perspective on the Bay of Pigs to your audience, the Bay of Pigs happened when um, Fidel Castro was climbing over the mounds of Cuba to take over the reins of government power from uh, President Batista. Uh, long story short, he overtook uh, President Batista and took uh, over um, the island as a whole. Now, my grandfather was part of, in Spanish, it's called La Brigada 2506. In English, for the English audience, it's called the Brigade 2506. And what it was is it was a group of um, individuals who fought, and they were mostly um, inland um, Cubans, to help thwart the regime power that Fidel Castro was going to bring. So um, these inland Cubans knew, or these native Cubans, knew that the type of government, which is socialist, socialism and communism that was going to be arised, was not what they wanted. So all these um, native Cubans fought to try to keep the land the way it was when President Baptista was um, in power because he allowed the country to flourish. He allowed people to have businesses. My, uh, my great-grandfather on my mom's side had a um, Goodyear tire business, sort of like the ones that we now see locally, you know, where you need to get a tire change. But mm -hmm. when Castro came in um, and brought in the socialist um you know, point of view, he took out that business altogether. So my grandfather lost his business as a whole. What were the, so what did, did your grandfather talk about what the sentiments were, the climate, as far as the change was happening when Fidel was rising from Batista? Because I've, I've kind of read conflicting things. I've heard that Batista wasn't good for the people. He was kind of a cruel dictator, or not dictator, but leader. Um, what, what was, what, would, what did your grandfather ever talk about, about how Cadet Castro went from revolutionary to dictator well donnie to add perspective my biological grandfather who served in the brigade died when i was about uh four years old okay. max so i never really got to have the historical talks and whatnot but what i can tell you is is that from when he came back because another part of the story about my grandfather is that he was imprisoned he was a prisoner of war and um, because that battle of the Bay of Pigs was so intense for him, he, um, he had his best friend die in his arms and mm -hmm. he died in his arms in like a, um, I forget now at the top of my head, but it was a, a cruel treatment with water. Um, 
I, I wish I can remember the, the the style of punishment now, but um, waterboarding or so something something close to the edge of waterboarding. But he was in prison there and in Cuba for almost I think ten years, and it took him a very long time to get out of Cuba just to come back to the United States because both of my parents um fled Cuba uh, in different stories uh, during the Bay of Pigs, but um. But yeah, so it was like that. But for the most part, um, what I can add to your as an answer to the question that you asked, my grandmother on my mom's side uh, would say that Bautista, for the most part, was um, a very balanced type of leader. It wasn't so much that he was so extreme on one side that the country couldn't prosper because that wasn't the case because my grandmother, when she was a child, lived very lavishly to the point where um there was a big house it was um multiple families that would live in there so think of it as like a two-story home with two families and then on top of that they had a maid so mm -hmm. it's almost kind of like to picture for the audience who's listening on audio think of it in the sense of like the style of living that's portrayed in gone with the wind yeah so what 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 did they think? Did you, is your grandma still alive? And, and, and no, still she passed away in 1999. But that was about the only true tidbit that I that I really got from her because I, I was so young, um, at you know during my youth and having her alive. So like the historical uh, appreciation that I have now as an adult wasn't really reflected then as a kid. But I understood it and I carried mm -hmm. the Cuban American um, heritage with me. So, what are the sentiments now? What are they? So, I did. Did you? Is there any more like when your father? Is there any kind of harboring resentment towards the U.S. or is it still all the resentment based upon resenting Cuba and Castro and and what he what he took over? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make you chuckle with this answer, but Donnie. So, when my dad came to the United States, um. One of the things that uh, he did was is he ended up getting a job down the line in federal law enforcement. He became a U.S. Customs agent. So um, he basically took on that badge, if you mm -hmm. will, because he wanted to to fight the good fight for this for this country that gave him an opportunity to escape the oppression and the communist uh, way of living in Cuba. So. I think I think that's such a like you know thank you your dad for your service but it's it's such a people think that when immigrants come to this country or, or people they they are anti-us and they want everybody, they I've overwhelmingly you find so many people who are like I just am so happy that I got the opportunity and that come from somewhere that doesn't have the benefits that we have that doesn't have the opportunities that we have so when they come here they're so american I have one of my best friends is from um from uh, Kosovo, mm -hmm. he came over and he joined the military. He's got American tattoos everywhere and all stuff like that. And it's the sentiment, and it's so often, it's just underappreciated what, what actually happens when you come here. And as far as the socialism, and you're seeing it now in the, in the tide now with the political, and, and your demographic in Southern Florida has become huge in the news because of you guys are getting up rows in the, the voting numbers and it's becoming very much this election is like triggering something. And what do you hear about, even even not much in your own family, but all throughout Southern Florida and the Cubans and the, of, the rising tide of socialism? Is it what, what are the sentiments that you hear? What is the paradigm that you're, you're hearing or feeling in Southern Florida with the Cuban Americans? Well, I think it's kind of like a little bit of like 80-20, and I'll, and I'll explain what my 80-20 is. I believe that there's an 80% of the Miami, South Florida population, Hispanic-wise, and this is not just the Cuban community, but you also look at like the Venezuelan community that feel that with the current tide, they don't want the U.S. to turn into what their native countries are with these socialist communist governments, right? But then you see a certain like 20% that um, feel that with the past administration's doings and certain um, dealings that they want to keep that because they think that um, that with a certain um, 
embargo that was lifted that they're able to send um, money and medicine to relatives who are still stuck on the island of Cuba or let's say even to Venezuela. So it's kind of like that, but I would say for the the 80% is really in favor of keeping the current uh, form of government, of democracy and capitalism that the United States has to offer as the way to go because it's, it's the way that they wanted to live but couldn't because of how Fidel turned that country after he overtook Bautista. I mean, that's so poignant because that that is is it's the difference between reading it in a book and living it, and stuff like that. And you talked about your dad a lot. What about the females perspective from from Cubans and, and how they lived and when they come up? What is your your grandmother and your mom? What are their sentiments about everything that's going on? So, Donnie, let me tell you, I guess, the story um, about how my mom, when the the Bay of Pigs uh, was going on, like how her story came about to come to the U.S. So if you've read the history of, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and then, you know, branching down to the Bay of Pigs, um, there was also a Catholic uh, church group that created a program called the Peter Pan Program, right? And the Peter Pan Program was started by the Catholic groups to help essentially kids get out of the communist Cuba country and bring them to the United States and escape. So when the Bay of Pigs was going on, um, my mom and my aunt, her her sister, they're now I'm gonna put this in perspective, they're also 10 years apart. So my mom was nine years old and my mm-hmm. aunt was 19 years old, but they had to hop on a plane without my grandmother and grandfather, their parents, they, they both had to stay and they were taken from Cuba all the way to New Mexico uh, specifically um, um, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they got placed in a foster uh, home for about, I think it was six years. So um, the real challenge there was being the children of, of that era being separated from their biological parents because their parents sacrificed themselves to stay in Cuba to try to fight the good fight. So they were uh, essentially transported to the United States by the Catholic Church in that Peter Pan program to escape this oppression and socialist country. So, you know, for the audience out there that's listening, you know, imagine a world where you are nine years old or even a young adult at 19 in the case of my aunt and being separated from your parents for about 10 years. Essentially, because it took they were it was about six years that they stayed in New Mexico with the foster family, something to that extent. And then my parents um, were able to move or not my parents, excuse me, but my mom and my aunt were able to move from Albuquerque, New Mexico, all the way to New Jersey, because that's where um, my grandparents were able to escape from when they were able to get out of Cuba. Wow. I mean, that's that's. I mean, it's a pretty selfless act, too, of your parents. I can't imagine having to leave my mind for 10 years just, but you know it's for a better life. You know, because that's the end of it. You want your kids to have a better life. But that's, I mean, th- thank you so much for sharing that. That is a poignant story, absolutely. That, the fact that at nine years old, you basically on your own, and it's still better than, than being there. That, that's very telling about the climate. And then, Donnie, I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you. You asked me earlier, right? But now that I've given you both, like mom and dad's side story, mm-hmm. they both till this day still despise what it is that Fidel Castro and now Raul Castro, his brother who took over in power, they still despise and hate everything that they have turned into the country. So mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a little bit of substance. Um, for example, in a lot of the movies, right? that we watch and for example um in die another day when they did the cuba scenes we know based off of the behind the scenes footage in the dvds that that was filmed off the coast of spain and they did Mm -hmm. a great job aesthetically portraying cuba right but that's just the tourism side that everybody gets to see and that's like glamorized but if you really want to understand like the true nuts and bolts there is these families in these homes and i still have like some second and third cousins that live there that for instance they can't get 
so much as like uh, a package of meat. Like, you know, we could go to the local market and just buy, you know, some ribeyes or some, um, in Spanish it's called palomilla, but like these thin um, steaks, you know, we can go there and spend eight bucks. They can't even get that. So, you know, what people see on the news or whatnot or how the commercial ads were glamorized when the last administration opened up the embargo for travel, whatever. I mean, it's pretty, but that's all done for the tourism dollars so that the country can continue to do it. But really, the country is still starving for basic necessities in foods and uh, medicines, you know, for simple antibiotics and whatnot. So it's not also, you know, the answer to your question that you asked me a while back about my dad does, you know, what are his thoughts? Like, you know, is he, does he despise the U.S. or does he despise Cuba? No, both my parents, after telling you both sides of their story, they despise Cuba because of the, the type of government that um, was brought on by Fidel. And talking to my mom last night, uh, Donnie, you know, because I told her that I was going to be on this, she mm. said, um, you know, if Fidel had not done what he had done in climbing the mountain and taking over, chances are that I would have probably been born in Cuba because yeah. they would have stayed there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a crazy story. I mean, it's so, it's so again, thank you so much for sharing that. That's it's deep stuff. It's no deep worries. Thing. I mean, um, and what's crazy to think is that how the parallel in Dr. No. I guess now having studied history as a, you know, more mature adult than when I first saw it as a kid or as even as a young adult, like in my early uh, 20s, like how the parallels are there. And, you know, an interesting fact nugget, I, I, you and I watch documentaries all the time, but the, um, but according to one of the documentaries released uh, last year, uh, Ian Fleming got a lot of his stories from CIA agents or operatives. So it's no, to me, there's no coincidence in this uh, parallel that, you know, with the missile headed towards Miami and Dr. No and how the Cuban Missile Crisis was all about having a missile pointed at Miami. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that they, they knew that this was going to be a problem. I think the CIA kind of always knew that they had to watch out for the Caribbean, and especially Cuba, because of its close proximity. And then it came to fruition. So it was really interesting parallels. And Thank you again so much for all the things that you talked about today. You really shared a lot of stuff. I feel silly to even go here, but I have to. It's quantum of history. I have to do this, right? Yes, you do. Okay. If you're going to ride a missile, okay, you're getting sent in a missile. You're going to pick one bond. Girl, you're getting sent all the way over to Miami. Who's on the missile with you? Uh, who is on the missile with me? Man. You, remember, uh, it's short, okay, because the missile is going to land. It's going to blow up, all right? So uh, this, is, this isn't marriage. This is all right. That's well, it. listen. Last hurrah. Last hurrah. What are we talking about from the whole film franchise? The whole film franchise. Pick <sighs> one. Well, listen. I know that you're Mr. Darmus, so I'm not gonna pick Anno. But I guess I'm I'm gonna tell the war. But I'm gonna go with Alexa King, Sophie Marceau. Good. You know, Sophie Marceau was always my favorite until I haven't seen her yet, but I, she's already got it. But that's a great pick, buddy. Great pick. Sophie Marceau, Electric King, can't argue with that, buddy. So I want to thank you again for coming on today, Daniel. You were fantastic. And thank you so much for sharing this sentence because I think it's important to not just when you read things, it's so much different reading things and, and having ideas and then the actual implementation and the actual reality and the consequences of those ideas. Because there's so many things that you don't perceive that happen. And you're sharing the stories about, you know, your mom being nine years old, being sent out, your dad, your grandfather, all these things. Thank you so much for sharing today, Daniel. Thanks for hopefully do it again, buddy. Thank you again for coming on, bud. No worries, Donnie. My pleasure. Take care. Likewise. Thank you, Danny, for coming on. It's always such a treat. Such a treat to have you on, but you're always fun. And I, he's a Marlins fan, which is like really rare. I mean, who likes the Marlins? Your guess is as good as mine, too. I don't get it either, but he's a really good dude. So, again, thank you for having me on. Thank you for sharing those those times and those aspects of your life with us. So, thank you again. So much is good. So, this is going to be wrapping up 
my first soiree into YouTube, my first soiree doing both the podcast and the YouTube. If you listen to me on the podcast, as always, thanks again. Thanks for tuning in, as always. If you're listening to me on YouTube, watching me on YouTube, this is your first time watching. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you see what it have. It's your first time actually hearing what I have to do with Conan history or hearing what I'm trying to, to do with this podcast, with this YouTube channel. Uh, go ahead and start listening to the podcast. I'll be turning those over to YouTube videos. They, you know, it won't be like this. I hadn't recorded like this, but I'll make it work. But start with the first one. Start with uh, don't start with the first one. I'm sorry. Do not go to. Don't go to the intro. I may delete it. I don't know. I, I want to save it as a timepiece to be like, God, wow, that was awful. Don't start with the intro. Just start with you know 17, which is Moonraker, and work your way back. So that way, by the time you get to like the the intro, you're like, all right, well, I give him a pass. Give me a pass. Just like you have to give the ending of Doctor No a pass. Because it was the first one, didn't have the budget, didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing, and I had no idea, and I was recording in my car. So, <laughs> now I get to record in front of Anna with all this other stuff. So, it's I've come a little ways. So, thank you guys so much. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for watching. If you're not subscribing to me, if you're not clicking subscribe, subscribe. I don't know. I, I see these all these YouTube things. are always like, subscribe. Subscribe. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna say the same thing. Subscribe to me if you like what I did, if you like what you're seeing, if you like direction, and if you don't mind watching me, you know, proselytize and and just jammer on for however long this ends up being, probably like 40 minutes. But um, subscribe. I don't know why I'm using a voice. Subscribe. All right. So again, thank you so much for for tuning in. This has been Quantum of History. I'm your host, Donnie Waldron. Thank you so much. Tune again. Next episode coming soon. I've got a lot of stuff coming forward. And as for watching me on YouTube, I will have all the other ones eventually as YouTube videos as well. So thank you so much. Looking forward. Subscribe. Subscribe. Thank you, guys. Stay positive out there, guys. Thank you.